I changed my mind on, on that quite a lot since since I started working as a scientist. In the, in the beginning, I was thinking we should focus on what we're good at. We should do the best science we can and, and really focus on that and then leave the communication to someone else, maybe not even worry about the communication. Um, but seeing now those, what you, what you started with, that there's 60-something percent not believing in climate change while we are sitting here and we, we know that this is happening, we... we don't know all the details of how it's going to happen, but we know it's going to happen, and we have a lot of insight. And there's this, this disconnect that makes me personally very frustrated. And obviously, just talking about the facts doesn't do the job, it seems like, right? So, so that's where I think the arts can play a huge role, and where I'm becoming interested and, and motivated to go beyond doing good science and actually trying to get help from, uh, from artists, for example, to communicate that, because we, we need to communicate that at different levels, not just at the, at the cognitive level, but at the emotional level as well. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Boreales Samtala. In this podcast, we're diving into the archives of conversations with composers, artists, and musicians previously held at Boreales, a festival for experimental music here in Bergen, Norway. My name is Vilde Tuv, and each month for this podcast, I'm finding a new conversation to share with you. In this episode, we'll hear a conversation that took place at Boreales 2020 between climate scientists and artists and a curator, exploring the potential of art and science working together in the challenge of the climate crisis. The conversation was one of several events during the festival addressing the issue of climate change. Later the same evening, Bergen Philharmonic Orchestra had joined forces with research scientists from the Bjerkna Center for Climate Research for a full concert night in Grigal, followed the next days by the Scandinavian premiere of Sun and Sea, the beach opera from the Lithuanian Pavilion at the Venice Biennale 2019. The conversation you're about to hear touches on some urgent areas. Amongst others, our responsibility for creating the images of the world we want to see. The urgency of letting hope replace melancholia. And the huge potential of the arts and sciences to work together to combat climate change denial. So, enjoy the conversation. Here's Peter Minuel, Artistic Director of Boreales, to introduce the panel. This conversation feels like an urgent and timely one. It's probably too late, but I think that's something we might get to in the course of the next hour. Um, the issue of climate change is not a new one. Um, climate scientists have been investigating the idea that the Earth's climate has changed over time since the 19th century. Uh, but it was from the 1950s, I think, that humanity's impact on the climate began to become a cause for concern. By the late 60s, smog, the increase of aerosol use, fossil fuel emissions all became culprits for the possibility of global warming. So we had already been warned. Um, I'm not at this stage going to give even an attempt to give a praise of the climate science because I have two eminent climate scientists on stage with me. But I think it's fair to say that there's a consensus amongst scientists that the 
Earth's climate has warmed significantly since the late 1800s. Uh, human activities uh, are the primary cause. Uh, continuing emissions will increase the severity of global effects and that people and nations can act individually and collectively to slow the pace of global warming uh, while also preparing for unavoidable climate change and its consequences. Uh, I think we, if we look closely, or not even so closely, we see that those who disagree with this, we could probably categorize as members of the populist right uh, or lobbyists for the fossil fuel industry, and that's a Venn diagram that also includes parts of the Republican Party in the US. Um, but the combined effect of the climate change denial movement means that public consensus is not as robust as scientific consensus. Um, a study in the Environmental Sociology Journal in 2017 uh, in Norway found that a total of 63% of conservative males in Norway do not believe in anthropogenic, by which they mean human-made climate change. So that's 63% uh, of conservative males as opposed to 36% amongst the rest of the population who deny climate change and global warming. Um, so not everyone believes this, but the scientists and the data tell us it's happening. Uh, and we're here we sit at an experimental music festival, and since the last time we sat together in 2019, uh, we've seen the phenomena of Greta Thunberg and the school strikes, Extinction Rebellion taking to the streets in force around the world. Uh, we've also witnessed devastating fires in the Amazon and large parts of Australia. Um, in the world of the arts, the response has been mixed. Uh, panels have begun to be convened, ironically somewhat, at international art fairs to debate the climate crisis. Um, choreographer Jerome Bell announced his refusal to fly anymore or to attend any performance that has involved flying. Um, music festivals, including this one, are trying to eradicate single-use plastics by using other methods and trying to think through our responsibility. Uh, Icelandic artist Olaf Oliasson is placing melting glacial ice outside the Tate Modern. You know, there's many different reactions to this. They lurch between the critical, the conceptual, and the practical. So just to say that we proceed here today based on the facts and the scientific consensus that we are in the midst of a climate crisis. Um, and the question that we're faced with, I think, as cultural consumers, festival organizers, uh, citizens, is what should our response be? And crucially, uh, today, is there something that art and science do or can do together that can help us with this response. Um, so I'm joined uh, by a wide range of experiences and ideas on stage. I'd like to welcome Thomas Spengler, a meteorologist, uh, professor at the University of Bergen and director of the Research School on Changing Climates in the Coupled Earth System and president of the International Commission on Dynamical Meteorology. Did I get that right? Yep. Excellent. Uh, Lucia Petruisti. Uh, General Ecology Curator at the Serpentine Galleries in London, as well as the Curator of Sun and Sea, the Lithuanian Pavilion at the 2019 Venice Biennale, um, and now at Borealis this weekend on Saturday and Sunday. Hey. Uh, next to the chair, Nele Mekla, Associate Professor at the Department of Earth Sciences at the University of Bergen, whose work includes creating reconstructions of the climate in periods with high greenhouse gas concentrations in order to better predict future climate change. And Franz Jacobi on the far end there, a visual artist working with performance, film, installation, text, and image, and whose work engages directly with the issue of climate change. Uh, also leader of the visual arts department at the University of Bergen. Um, so it's not always uh, that we have artists and scientists in the same space, so this is a fantastic opportunity. Um, Thomas, can I start with you uh, before we get into the meat of the discussion? I'm just, I guess this might be too big a question to ask, but when we talk about climate crisis, how large is the problem and how immediate is it? <laughs> <laughs> it's 
good question to start. <laughs> yeah, with. why not? Let's get there. <laughs> I mean, you kind of summarized it already. What, what what are the facts and what we know? I would I would just like to roll back a little bit when you when we all use the term climate crisis crisis in particular, the word I'm referring to. Also, we have to save the planet, and I'm I'm always wondering um, what do we really mean by that? So. Um, so crisis always implies that something is at risk, but climate, like from a scientific perspective, I mean, climate has always been there. It has been changing and has been very different. So uh, what's really at risk with the climate? Um, so as soon as you have a planet with an atmosphere, there will be a climate and that's it. But I think we should also, what I'm trying to get at is like, is it the planet that we have to save or is it the climate that we have to save? Actually, what, what's really about is it's a human crisis. So not, not necessarily. I mean, the climate, of course, plays a huge role in this. So there's a lot of things. I mean, now there's a virus spreading the world. There's also a human crisis to some extent, of course. But um, my, my point is really that when we talk about climate or saving the planet, maybe we're distracting ourselves that it's actually really just about us. I mean, it's, it's also about how, how do we want to proceed as a human race on this planet? And uh, that, that's the real crisis or the urgency that I see. So there's a lot of facts, a lot of things we know. And um, the question is, how, what are we going to do with that? And we put, so that the, the, the crisis that I see is that, uh, that that's very special now, that we ourselves as a human race put ourselves at risk by the very way we change land use, by the very way we change the climate, as you said. And there's, of course, repercussions on our future and us as the human race. But, you know, even when, well, we will go extinct eventually. Uh, so there will still be a climate. There will still be a planet. So the question I think that's much more urgent is like this, this human crisis. How do we as a human race want to deal with that problem that's right in our face? Because yeah. you said to me before, the ocean doesn't care. So the climate doesn't rises, care. Yeah. No. I mean, like we could just keep business as usual, and then we kind of know what's going to happen. A lot of ice will melt. A lot of uh, countries will disappear with slight rising sea level. So it's, it's kind of a, a value debate among the, our species to say, you know, is that okay? Um, also, like the, the the other crisis, as was also mentioned, with the chair that now disappeared, so the species dis dis disappear. <laughs> yeah. So we have we have, a, we have also a huge crisis with the diversity of uh, species on this planet, and that will also feed back on us. I mean, so for example, the polar bear has been really iconized as this animal that will be so affected by climate change. But and then the, the polar bear has been a great vehicle to convey that message. But then we can also ask, who cares if there's a polar bear? I mean, I think it's a fascinating animal, and it has its place on this planet. But um, it's, it's, I think what we should really be aware of is that we change this environment, and it's us, also, actually only us on this planet, that have a conscience that can uh, work with facts and make decisions. So it's, it's basically, we got us in this situation, but it's also us and our future decisions that can alleviate mm. certain pathways. I think we're going to come back to this yes. throughout the course of the hour. And be, I mean, you're also a regular member, of the audience member at the Greek Hallen, That's right. Um, the concert hall just over the road here. And you've convened this four-part series of, of concerts uh, together with the orchestra there with scientific interludes. And I wondered, one of which we can hear this evening uh, as part of Borealis. Um, and I wondered what you hoped this would achieve. Well, along these lines, so... Uh, 
So we combine science and arts, in this case the music, with the Philharmonic Orchestra. And the, the, the idea was to create something that's larger than each part. And it, also in the way um, that science, we have our ways of working and our ways of communicating, and the arts, in this case the music, has its way of working and of communicating. And we felt that it, putting them together will create something more than each of them trying to communicate. So, the, I mean, as, as you mentioned, as probably will be mentioned here later on, there's artists that are very concerned about the changes to the planet, and they're also probably trying to express that through the art they, they perform or they, they, they create. The same is with our scientists, but um, we have very different ways to communicate. For example, I had a hot chocolate with a colleague yesterday, and then uh, the one thing we came up with is, so, so as a scientist, uh, the only thing there is is the, the facts, the truth to the facts. So, so you kind of you, you're locked in. And with the arts, there's also truth, but mainly with the truth to itself. So, it has, so the arts has to be truthful, but it doesn't have to be truthful to a fact necessarily. Right? So it has to be within itself. At least that's what, <laughs> what, what, what we realized. And also, actually, I talked to uh, the composer tonight, Teresa Ulvo, and actually she, that's also her standpoint, actually. So, so coming from these very different perspectives, I thought there's something to be gained to do something together. And uh, I, I thought also the, the first two concerts where I felt you had the, the scientists on stage and it's not like a regular science talk, that's first of all. So they're trying to also be more artistic and integrated into the music. But then the, the talk and kind of what, what kind of emotions that already evokes in you and then followed by the music that engages you much more emotionally. So I, I, I thought it was really special. I, I, uh, that's, that's, so the, the hope that we are trying to achieve with this concert is that it will create... Um, well, it will, uh, not creativity, it will be inspiration. It will be inspiration to, to think about these problems and to also you know, scrapple with oneself. Is there something I can contribute to? So it's, it's, uh, we were very careful that it's not like uh, dogmatic. So it's not like you, 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 you've done all this, you know, just go home and fix it. It's, it's much more open. So we really try to create an envi environment where, well, these are the facts. We are a species on this planet that can actually react on these facts. Mm. Um, what are we going to do? What do you want to do? So that's, yeah. Lucia, when you, uh, you curated the Lithuanian Pavilion at the Venice Biennale, um, and that work, Sun and Sea, uh, which I urge you all to see, as well as come this evening to the Greek island, um, it, does, it does deal directly with climate change. Uh, and I wondered how you approached that at the, kind of the beginning of this process from this artistic perspective. Somewhat directly, I would probably argue. Hmm. Um, and actually, it has something to do with the hot chocolate that you've just mentioned. I almost, I don't, I haven't quite got my head around it quite yet, but I think in that conversation, which we're talk, you're talking about truth, art has something to do with the hot chocolate, as in the sensuous, the fleshy, the embodied, the mood, the context, the space, the way in which those things enter your body and how they kind of form part of your memory and your capacity to apprehend reality and truth itself. Uh, and I guess... To actually answer your question, uh, Sanensi is a work, so it's a work by three artists, Vaiva uh, Granite, uh, Rugile Barzukaite, and Lina Lapelite, which, should I summarize very quickly? Give, it, give us a quick, yeah. So, um, it's an opera that you see from about five to six meters, or even much 
higher up uh, above the stage level. So you're actually looking over the stage. And what the stage is, is this un, um, indoor, artificially lit public beach. Uh, the image, actually, for this panel was from that, uh, from that work. Um, and the public beach is, you know, people just doing their thing, like having ice cream and uh, playing cards and playing badminton and doing yoga and all those things that you do on the beach. But actually, there's characters on the beach, and they are all mic'd kind of like this, and they sing songs. And those songs are um, uh, everyday, like, thoughts and concerns and worries, and I did this, and I met my partner here, and I'm worried about tomorrow morning that, and all this kind of stuff, with a kind of underneath um, anxiety around, uh, like, the climate. And it appears in these kind of flashes of moments, you know, uh, a kind of meditation that the philosopher character has on where the banana that he's holding kind of comes from and all the trajectory that it has, uh, all the kind of places that it has crossed to get to his ha his or her actually hand. Um, the uh, volcanic ash cloud blocking uh, to being the kind of uh, force that brought a couple together that is now on the beach. Someone's complaining about us plastic on the beach and people leaving their sandwich wrappers. So you don't really get the, like, things are really awful and you, you kind of don't get that thing that climate anxiety work does. And in fact, and I don't know if this is true or not, but the artists themselves would argue that I did quite a lot of the pushing of saying, like, yes, yes, this is about climate change. And that they were... <laughs> and that they were... Um, they started from the principle of thinking about making a relationship between the tired body of the planet and this kind of fragility and slow uh, tectonic kind of movement of the planet and this kind of tired, lazy, fragile, slow behavior on the beach of the body. So the body of the human and the body of the planet as a kind of um, transitional thing between the two. You do get... Having said that, art is not only the intention of the artist or the thing itself, but it's also the reception that it receives. And I think you need to take account of that as work or as the work as well. And I think that the, the Sun and Sea did a lot more in relation to the climate conversation by having received the kind of popular uh, response that we did. We had huge queues. It was awarded. It, was, it sort of it reached, it kind of did that thing of crossing past the very insular contemporary art field and into a kind of popular discourse. And by doing that, it sort of opened that conversation a lot wider with the audience. So probably in, in that moment, it, it did that. And it did that through uh, gestures. The feeling, there's a lot of people that came and said, oh, I felt like crying and stuff like this. And it's really not a manipulative, like trying to make you cry kind of piece. It's really matter of fact. It's kind of absurd. It's, it's a bit like, you know, if you imagine like a piece of ham falls on the floor kind of thing. Uh, and buy a ticket now. Are the artists <laughs> uh, in the sense that it has that kind of absurd uh, matter of factness? But it has that feeling of I'm looking at life, and there's something so vast and incomprehensible and kind of moving about the simplicity of my life. And so I often say that it has a moving quality more akin to what you might feel if you're, you know, the day that your kid is packing up their bags to go and live at, you know, go to university and move out the house. And you kind of have this feeling that the, this life that you've shared together has kind of just happened. Or the feeling that you might get when they're like babies and you know that that moment is going to happen. You know, so these kinds of very daily, very small things that are actually really like 
expose you to the vertigo of uh, what it is actually to be alive on this planet, I think. Because, I mean, for me, having seen the work in Venice, it's kind of the mundaneness, the mundanity of it yeah. that gets you. That, that it's people singing about the mushrooms arriving earlier or later or not being there where they used to be. And, and somehow that in contrast to this idea that when we open a newspaper, it tells us X million species are going yeah. to be extinct or so many tons of you know, ice is melting every second, which are completely meaningless facts to me sitting here in Bergen because I don't understand what those numbers mean. So, so somehow... The, it allows us to present a non-factual or a mundane space that makes us realize how we are every day stepping into this huge numerical hyper-object of a disaster. You know, I spent quite a lot of time before the piece opened saying that the piece was really about our, incom- our impossibility to comprehend or to conceive of the vast complexity of the hyper-object of climate change. And I uh, now have begun to uh, think a little bit more along what you've just said, which is actually the piece does a lot to kind of make you feel a part of it rather than make you sort of try and get the whole picture, but more kind of this is me and this is the various ways in which it interacts with me. It was kind of interpreted by the critics uh, in Venice as um, we're all sleepwalking to the end of the world, kind of, which... Arguably. We are. (laughs) Thank you. I think I'm going to come back to the institutional question a bit later on. Nele, you, uh, at the coalface, as it were, of of research, um, you are out and about, you're you're working with data, you're... um, I've realised now I'm going to just ask you what it is you do, because I think you can tell us better. Um, Reconstructing historic climate scenarios, I think, is what I've got written down. What does that mean? What do you do? Right. So I, I like to call myself a climate detective, but uh, the witnesses I'm, I'm uh, talking to are rocks or mud from the ocean floor. So basically material that has accumulated over thousands or millions of years, um, and that records the climate at the time when it was formed. So we can uh, use chemical methods or other type of, of methods to get indirect evidence of what the climate was like back then. So, um, so that lets us draw a picture of what a climate state looks like. For example, 50 million years ago, when there were a lot, of, a lot more CO2 in the atmosphere, when we actually had a greenhouse climate, we had no ice on the poles, and we can try and understand what a climate system in that state looks like. And we can also understand what maybe rapid transition from one climate state, from one version of the climate system to another looked like, what might be triggering that, where might be the kind of thresholds that you cross to get into a different climate state. So it's a, it, gives, it gives us a lot of perspective on what the system can look like and, and what it's capable of. And I think um, maybe part of the reason why there's my mind frustratingly little action at the moment is that maybe we as humans have difficulty even imagining a, a world, a climate that's different from what we're used to or from what even our generation is used to. So, um, so I think uh, we as geologists have maybe a better job to do to getting this picture across that yes, the earth can look very differently, it can change rapidly from one state to another. Because it, it strikes me there's an interesting quality to this that maybe connects you to the art field here, um, it, which is speculation. Mm-hmm. Because actually you're not dealing just with 
now, in a way, you're saying, let's imagine together, which is something we say a lot at the festival. Mm. I mean, do you, do you feel that you create speculative spaces for people? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, our facts from back then are, are tiny little snapshots of, uh, and interpretations of data mm. uh, that we use to, in our mind, create a picture of what the world worked like. But it, it was, it's very, it's very um, little uh, facts we actually can work with. So we have to imagine what this world was like and we form hypotheses and then we go to other places and try to test those hypotheses. Yeah. Yeah. And you, I mean, you do your work in caves and underground places, and, right? Part, partly, partly, yeah. I mean, mm. not, not always living in the caves. But, um, <laughs> but, I mean, you, you've also taken photographers into caves with you. I mean, you document your work in a way that isn't strictly kind of data. Is, is, why, why, do you, why do you do that? Yeah, I think, I think to convey the fascination, for one. So, I mean, these, these underground... Uh, these caves are just fascinating places, and when you see these these dripstones, uh, meter high dripstones, and and you kind of understand that this rock has seen many thousand years and has seen very different climate states. I think I think that's a different way of engaging uh, people who outside science uh, to this topic, and and also to the way we're working as scientists. I mean, that's also maybe a bit hard to comprehend for some, like, how, how do we actually get this information? How, like, how reliable is this information? So I, I want to convey how we work um, in order to, yeah, to get the message across, the, the, the insights across that we gain from these rocks. Mm. So we're kind of almost back to the hot chocolate again, this kind of <laughs> sensuous, experiential moment. Um, Franz, your recent work with Gita Setra, the green hijab movement and the internet TV series, Are You Ready?, um, has been termed climate futurism. Um, so I think there's a deal of speculation here as well. I, I just wonder, could you tell us a little how these works engage with the issue of, of climate change or human... I don't know, maybe we need to re-term it after Thomas's uh, intervention, but let's call it the yeah, climate change. Um, it's actually three works that, by coincidence now, becomes a kind of triology of, of, of artworks dealing somehow with climate change. The first was a film uh, from 2000. It was made in 2014-15 uh, as part of a large project about various crises. And, we would, and it also shows a little bit how fast time is actually moving now. So at that time we were discussing, okay, the climate crisis is something we cannot see it in our everyday life. So we were kind of searching for where is it actually we can look at this. And then we found these craters in Siberia that appeared that, that summer. We started the project where methane gas, because of the global warming, is, is melting and exploding. So we had this, there appeared this 15, 20 very huge craters that looked very dramatic. So we saw this is a kind of visual expression of this huge crisis that actually kind of visually symbolizes or transports this urgency and crisis. So we made a film about, about those craters. Um, and that film has this very apocalyptic feeling. So it ends with... We, the film is built on this idea that we found in this nomad people who live in Siberia called the Nenets, where they have this idea that everything is spiritual. So each object, all parts of nature has voices... So in the film, we gave voices to the craters, 
the methane gas has a voice, the air has a voice, the iPhone has a voice, Twitter has a voice, the airline company has a voice. So there's different, all these different agents that is part of the crisis speaks to us. Uh, and it ends with, the, with this goddess of the atmosphere who says the earth will turn red and dry and the sun will be kind of beaming through everything in a new light. So it has this kind of very apocalyptic feeling. And then after doing that film and also engaging with a lot of other artists who are working on this issue, we thought, okay, this, this kind of urgency of negativity that we feel, this very huge sadness you also talk about, it's maybe it's too easy to work with in a sense. And then the next work, which... Uh, is this green hijab movement is it's from 2017, which is more like a fantasy. At that time, we thought, what, what is it we need? We need a global climate movement that can actually change this from the perspective of the people of the whole world. And then we fantasized about how would such a movement look, and we came up with this idea that, that the people who are really victims of, of the climate crisis, the first are the... The, the women of the global south and what, how can we find a, a symbol that expresses them and we, we took the hijab as a kind of representation of the, the woman of the global south and then we, we said okay this movement is symbolized by a green hijab so if, if you wear the green hijab you are somehow in solidarity with all those victims of the, the poor victims of the global uh, climate crisis and then we did different events here in Bergen and uh, one in, in uh, Denmark as well. And on a very small scale, we tried to kind of perform how, uh, how this movement would, would act. One very uh, central term was this idea of geopolitical care. So we thought, this is what, what is it we need on the level of politics? We need geopolitical care for those people who are kind of becomes victims of the the changing climate. Uh, but then quite soon, of course, our little movement uh, very soon ended by being me and Gide, uh, and then somebody helped us with different events. And then uh, the half year later came Greta Thunberg and created actually a real movement, and then came this um, the Extinction Rebellion, also as a very broad movement. So in a sense, this, our fantasy of a global climate movement actually became real just not as a green hijab movement but as something else and I think what is, is super interesting is how this uh, Greta is, is using the voice of the, the child and the teenager as it has an innocence that is so strong that you, we cannot argue with our own children they, are, they have the truth in their hands and, uh, and they have the future so th so it's been so exciting to follow follow these moments. My own children is also trying to take part as, as much mm. as they can. Uh, and then the third work which we're working on now is, is from this idea of, of trying to, instead of, of being very sad, then trying to, to create a position where we would somehow fantasize about a future. Uh, and then we were quite occupied for a moment with this, uh, there's this movement in the arts called Afrofuturism, which in a sense takes the, the black movement and, and tries to create a positive future for the, 
for the black people of the earth. Mm -hmm. And we thought, okay, this this idea of a futurism that that is somehow trying to figure out if we manage to change societies in face of this huge crisis, how will that look somehow? So in the in and the idea is that this is going to be a kind of small television series of two two seasons. <laughs> the first is seven episodes we're working on now. And then we found this, um, to carry this story, we've, we have this main character who's a dead tree that we, we started by growing somewhere and taking out of, of the water. So the dead tree is talking to the humankind. And, and the first part, the, the tree is called the on, no, the living, unliving surveillance poet. So the first season is more or less the tree waking up, starting to speak, uh, and looking at the societies of the humans and how complex and super interesting and and what is actually going on in this world. And then the next season, it's it changes name to the living, unliving agent of change. So there, we we imagine that the tree can somehow be in conversation with different people and of as a representative of, of that empty chair that disappeared, <laughs> uh, uh, as a kind of... I mean, in the traditional fable, you use uh, animals as, as kind of step-ins for humans, but here the dead tree is not a step-in for a human being. It's, a, it's actually talking on behalf of the forest, the stones, mm -hmm. the nature. So it's, it's like trying to create a position where where we as humans are talking with the other living beings in the, in the atmosphere uh, and seeing how that change of consciousness and philosophy is, what, what is it we are trying to change and how can we change it? So that's more or less the idea. And the, the, the nice thing about a dead tree is that it's, it's, uh, nobody says no to a dead tree. They will easily say no to me or, <laughs> or to Gita, but... It's a very positive experience to do this project because the dead tree is, is actually very charming and curious. <laughs> and when, when can we see this? On Netflix? It, yeah, it's, uh, the idea is that it, it comes out with the seven episodes every time it's full moon, so one a month, <laughs> okay. uh, starting... I hope we are ready 1st of October to okay. present the first one. And why the full moon? Because I think the full moon is... It's one of the only elements left where we're still, in general, we're kind of uh, we're still kind of influenced by the moon. So this, it's, it's. I mean, there's very few other elements in nature that influences us directly. Maybe the weather, but the moon is is at least some point that that most people somehow accept that the the moon has an influence on our bodies and. The, way we sense things and stuff like that. Yeah. Amazing, thank you. Um, I wanted just to start then with us all together with this idea of, um, of mediation because we've talked about an authenticity, we've talked about kind of the, the data, the facts or the truth of art and, and science having their own truths but then it also feels like there's a, there's a conversation that's, that's happening here where, again, the hot chocolate, right? That, 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 that in some ways as scientists you do your work and you have the facts, but you also would like people to know about it and you, there might be other mechanisms that, that need to help. And as, as artists or as curators, you, you need to deal with the facts in order to have teeth for your work in some ways. Uh, 
or not? I'm agreeing. Oh, okay. That was an Slowly nodding. Slowly nodding. Sideways. Um, so I just... <laughs> resting. <laughs> resting. <laughs> resting, nodding. I'm wondering, do you feel the need to be mediated, those of you who work in science? I mean, do, do you want artists to come to you and say, hey, <laughs> let me mediate? <laughs> or uh, another word you can choose. No question, but wanting to, I'm not sure. So the, uh, I think it's very stimulating. It's very inspiring to work with artists. I've done it a few times now, and uh, I, I probably learned equally as much as the artists from the artist than I learned. The artist might have learned from me. So, but that's like a personal human endeavor, right? So, so I'm just curious, and the, the, the artist comes with a huge curiosity. So, but that, that's a very personal thing, right? So, the, the, um, so you, I, I sense a bit of an agenda behind your question in the sense, you know, there has to be like a, a communication. And, you know, I think it's quite... A, I ask that question very often as a scientist. I mean, now, for example, when I ask the government for money, I write a proposal. The, the part that I have to write, how it will affect society, what kind of impact my research has had, so that becomes more and more a focus within science. So, so that, didn't, that, that was never there, like, if you go off, um, 50, 50 years ago or something. So then science was done for the sake of science, and of course, there were applications coming out of it, um, and I, uh, and today it's 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 like uh, we have to be out in the we have to justify the the taxpayers' money that we receive, and I think that's fine. Um, and then that, that contributes. You have to communicate, and but then it's like, are you motivated to communicate just to get your money, or are you are you communicating because you really have a sense that. This, everyone needs to know this, right? I mean, like, I have a lot of colleagues I collaborate with in, uh, in uh, pure mathematics. I mean, they couldn't care less about... Well, I shouldn't say that. But so the, they, 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 they don't have really, like, an application in mind, right? For them, it's really they have a mathematical problem and they're fascinated by it and they love it. And it's a bit like the artist, what we say, doing the arts has to be truthful to itself. So, so I think there's a lot of science that's still like this. But, but then science... A lot of science has become very applied, and also like climate science in particular, because it, we realized how much, what we, how we changed uh, the atmosphere, in particular, like the constituents of the atmosphere is CO2 emissions, how much that inflicts back on us. So all of a sudden, there's a huge interest out there for, okay, are we, we are actually doing something we need to know more about. And then it becomes like this dialogue. So, so, so then there's really, there's of course a request by the governments need to know, and also the people want to know, and we have the information, and then it's like, how do you get that across? And um, I have to say, uh, it's not that easy. So, so I'm, I, I'm trained as a scientist, and that's what I'm good at, I think, I hope. Uh, but um, then the communication is something I enjoy, but it's, uh, it's something that comes on top of my daily business, right? So, so this is why I think it's so interesting to work with someone that helps you communicate. And maybe also in, in, in very different ways, like what, what, what Franz was just saying. I think that's fascinating if you read it in... Like, we scientists, what you said before, I mean, like we may say, okay, it's going to be one degree warmer in 50 years. It doesn't mean anything to anyone in this room. But uh, if, if you can kind of visualize it or evoke emotions of, of what would that... Also, what Neil was saying, what does this world actually look like? I mean, maybe it would have been fascinating to live at the same time as the dinosaurs, but there was probably a reason we were not there then. Yeah. So we evolved, our, the human race evolved out of the last uh, 
hundreds, thousands of years, millions of years, and that, that has a reason, and it's actually also attached, and nearly as part of the project, I believe. Because of the climate that was then there, it was, it was possible to evolve as the species that we are. So, but that's difficult. I, I find it very difficult to convey, you know, maybe nearly can say more, yeah. but if you dig back in the past and then you discover these strange worlds, how do you make it comprehensible to to people? Okay, Nella, you dig back in the past and discover strange <laughs> worlds. How do you make it comprehensible to people? I mean, the speculative side of your work, what do you... Well, can I first uh, get back to your, your first yeah, question? Yeah, please do. Yeah, of course, yeah. Because I, I, I changed my mind on, on that uh, quite a lot since since I started working as a scientist. In the, in the beginning, I was kind of thinking, as, as Thomas was also in saying that we should we should focus on what we're good at we should uh, we should do the best science we can and, and really focus on that and then leave the communication to someone else maybe not even worry about the communication so much um, but seeing now those what you what you started with that there's 60 something percent not believing in climate change while we are sitting here and we we know that this is happening we we don't know all the details of how it's going to happen, but we know it's going to happen, and we have a lot of insight. Um, and there's this this disconnect um, that makes me personally very frustrated. So I'm, and obviously, just talking about the facts doesn't do the job. It seems like right. So yeah. so that's where I think the arts can play a huge role, and where I'm becoming interested and, and motivated to go beyond doing good science and actually trying to get help from uh, from artists, for example, to communicate that because we, we need to communicate that at different levels, not just at the, at the cognitive level, but at the emotional level as well. And I think that's where the arts come in. Lucia, yeah, I mean, you, you're at the Seven Dine Galleries, you're curator of general ecology, um, but that means that you're having conversations across artists and scientists and legal bodies and NGOs and everyone and you can find all the time. <laughs> and I, I just wanted to talk to this, to Daniela's point, like how, how do you make that conversation meaningful so that, that the artist doesn't feel like they're just being utilised for a PR project for a funding application <laughs> or, you know, or the scientist doesn't feel like they're being tokenised for or their work is being appropriate? How do, how do you even approach those I was actually really super excited by you, Thomas, saying that, oh, it's not just about making the communication part easy, but it's actually they've changed my mind because that's kind of one of the beliefs that I really have about the potentials of art or what art is for, which is it contributes to one piece of a larger uh, systems change uh, and uh, exists in part because of its uh, curiosity. So artists are curious. <laughs> uh, they are kind of amateurs at all the things that they become to, they begin to like really focus on. I mean, this is a vast generalization, but amateurs also means lover. And I also li I like the fact. Um, so I, clearly, I wear glasses. When I take my glasses off, I I see very blurry. And when I look at things in a very blurry way, everybody is coming that's coming towards me. I misunderstand. I misrecognize as my friend, and so it got me to thinking. I mean, I'm also just very chatty to people, but it got me to thinking that actually, when you look at things uh, without the granular 
expertise and experience of being a researcher on those things, you might be inclined to see and find similarities before you encounter differences. So I used to have a joke that it took interspecies, that I was doing events on interspecies communication, but actually you need an interspecies communication translator between an oceanographer and a microbiologist. Because even those conversations, I mean, we say science here, art here, but actually those conversations, and these, by the way, are like super um, different from one another. Uh, And so on the one hand, there's this kind of amateurism, like purposeful amateurism, convening of different disciplines. We know from science, in fact, and social science, that thinking across disciplines achieves more outcomes and impacts and results. Uh, We, however, live in a world in which education goes more and more and more specialized. So the arts does this kind of like, let's all get back into this big hug and try and think a little bit together. I also just wanted to uh, uh, just say something about this idea of like complexity and care. For me, what's happening... So climate change... Climate disaster uh, is entangled with another enormous number of things. I often say that it's not like the climate crisis is on top of the world or on top of truth or on top of reality, but it is it. I mean, it's like it is the world. Now, it maps on one-to-one to the world, but so does social injustice, so does racism, so does sexism, so do all these other things. And on top of everything else, all these other things connect to one another. As you said, the people most affected by the effects of climate change are probably not sitting at all in this room today. And when we uh, 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 interact with this enormous complexity of the financial system, the capitalist system, the global trade routes, the weather that's changing, deforestation, you just go... So we're living through a kind of paradigmatic shift in which we need to get our heads around the complexity of complexity. And it's a little bit as big a, chain, a shift as figuring that like, the universe doesn't revolve around the Earth, that the Earth is not flat. Like, and we've managed to make those changes. We've ma- I don't personally think that there's anyone that believes that the Earth is flat. Well, I mean, it doesn't matter. And there's, like, there's a few people that do, but that's actually also okay. But, uh, so we've managed. So, how, so imagination and the capacity to change the kind of mythologies and what we know about ourselves and how we think of ourselves as a species, as a, as a planet, as a universe, and all this, those changes, those vast changes are possible. And they require those disciplines that are in the business of imagination and fiction and sort of myth-making and all these kinds of things. They've always done um, so I kind of see the art being kind of there and potentially being the decoy for very strategic um, systems change things, which maybe we talk about later. This is like the hippie part. <laughs> but, I mean, then there's the like really activist part. No, of. sure. But I mean, everyone has a red piece of paper. So I keep getting stuck with my microphone. Everyone has a red piece of paper on their seats, which is a public service announcement from the feminist militia and Borealis. And it's something that we've taken into our, our systems is to say that if we're not as an organization challenging the injustices that exist within culture, within our society, then we're sleeping on the job. And that any organization that isn't doing that within culture is complicit to maintaining these status quo. So I think there is a... I mean, there is this urgency, isn't there, to say we can't just separate off climate 
from all the other things, from the sexism. That and structure is kind of where the um, battleground is. Mm. And so, uh, not not that it's like this radical move, but general ecology was a prototype for a kind of parasite in an exhibition that in a in a in an institution in an art institution that would try to change not so much what we talk, what we program, but actually the structure of how we work. Mm. So the if the kind of slightly intended unintended effects of creating a position that was a fixed position that looked at the intersections of art and ecology in an organization is that that position is always going to be there, even if I kind of got. Mm. Uh, so you made a structural change to the organisation to say this has to be part of yeah. who we And are. it was made by first programming this over and over and over and over and over again and yeah. then kind of giving an image back to the institution of like, look, there's an audience that not only there's an audience for this, but there's an audience that looks to us for programming on this. So let's just put some roots in where those programmes have gone and instead of just talking about climate, let's make some infrastructural changes. And that's kind of how it worked. It was like a strategic take over, take under of, uh, of, of a kind of generalist institution. And so the, as it, it's very wise to say the structural things, like how we work together, how we work with others, how we organize ourselves, where the kind of power lies inside organizations, inside institutions. So this is one long sentence, is where the play is kind of at. Mm. It's interesting that three of our panel... Uh, members of the University of Bergen. Um, I, I would say museums are one big old institution, colonial institution, universities too. Um, the Faculty for Art, Music and Design, the Bjergner Centre for Climate Research and other parts of the university. Please correct me if I'm wrong. But is there any space where you, apart from on stage here today, where you meet or you have these conversations, Franz, Nilo, Thomas? I mean, is there any structural collision within the institution? Uh, I think what is super interesting in this university now, we, have, we are kind of new members of the university. We've only been there for three years, but, but there is now a kind of official public agenda on climate issues developing inside the university. And the interesting thing is that it comes from the top, not from the bottom. So because you had in the email you sent to us was a question to me about the students. Yes. And I would say I don't see in, this, in, in the students we have, I don't see any specific very huge interest. I think all the, the students in that generation are very influenced by the kind of sadness or climate melancholia mm. uh, we see, but we don't see a lot of artworks dealing with it or, in that sense, a lot of events. But from the top, from the very uh, rector of the university, comes a kind of climate agenda of how much can we fly, how, how should we uh, do conferences, how should we do things like that. And I think what that shows me is also this idea that, that it's very, very hard in an inside an institution, but also as a uh, free artist, to step outside of the system. We are all part of this problem of the climate change. It's not a scientific problem. It's a, a problem of society, of capitalism, of, mm. of humans somehow. And, and also to realize that as an institution, as big as a university, that is also a part of the problem. What we are doing, how we are teaching how we are who we are inviting who's flying in and out how we are 
heating up the building. There's a lot of very complex structures where we are inside the problem, not outside. Mm-hmm. And and that responsibility to to be part of a change is also very apparently back on us as as normal workers in a big system. Nella, yeah. do, you f- do you feel that too? Okay. Yes, for sure. I just, I just yeah. Re- yeah. reacted a little bit to, to what you said, that, it's, that the students are seem kind of like paralyzed or, or <laughs> not, not so active. I, I would say, at least in the, in the natural science part, the, there's a whole conference organized by students called Let's Talk About Tomorrow that was hugely successful. So I would say there is a, there's yeah. also a lot of activity from the students. Yeah. I think it was very interesting to hear what you said from the view within your faculty because I experience this very much the opposite. So, mm-hmm. so you say you feel like the rectorate now decided there's all these climate agendas. Um, I feel it very much the opposite. I feel like in our department and also the Bjergner Center, there was always this awareness of you know what, what can we do as a center. And I'm the leader of this climate school and I get a lot of emails from PhDs requesting we should do things more sustainable and differently okay. in this school. So it's very bottom-up. <laughs> so it's actually I'm forced as the director of the school to make adjustments. And it's, I feel very similar with the rectorate. I think there was a lot of pressure that came bottom-up. Otherwise, they would have never gone away with it. Right? This is also a democratic uh, thing, the university. So I think there was a lot of pressure coming from below. And as Nele was saying, I feel like the, the students at our department, of course, they're very much exposed to this theme of climate change and what, what, it, what it might mean for us. But they're very, uh, so there's melancholia. I actually would like to come back to that. I think it's a very interesting thing. But I, I, I feel they're very concerned, but I actually really admire them for taking it the other way. They say, okay, now, okay, we're at this point. What should we do? Where should we go? And they organized two years ago this a conference on let's talk about tomorrow. It was a huge success. And then actually the rector gave them Money and they have a foundation now to run an, another meeting this year. So, so it's it's very interesting to hear. That probably also depending which kind of part of society your mm-hmm. students come from. So there might be a different perception of the problem, which I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I think also it might have something to do with the art in general. That mm-hmm. that as artists we have had this position of being outside, saying okay. Uh-huh. Society is going to hell, but we're not. <laughs> we're, we're at home. And I think if you look at the art world as it is, as a reality, it's actually, we are a huge part of the problem. Of course, the art world is not very big, but it's uh-huh. it's based on traveling, more or less. It's like uh-huh. if you want to be a successful artist, you have to be on your way uh-huh. between well, different I mean, words. Let's talk practicalities, because yeah. we've talked lots of ideas. And, and I mean... I, there's this melancholia thing, though. Oh, We're going to lose it if we don't go into the melancholia thing. Okay. I feel very strongly about this because... Okay. Sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, a lot is put on individual action or structural change. We'd be foolish to think that it was one or the other alone, of course. Mm. It has to be said, however, that a relative optimism or nihilism in relation to what is possible has actual consequences, like it's a question of literal degrees, which has actual consequences on the survival of people who are not here. And so when, when, when I am constantly talking about the sort of imperative of throw everything you've got at this thing, 
try everything. There isn't going to be a one-step solution anyways. Like something as complex as the world itself doesn't have a one-step solution. And so just do everything you can. Do whatever you can because it is a question of degrees. And those degrees are going to burn or not burn the countries of others, right? And so it's like there, it's not a question. Like you're not... <laughs> All of you in this room don't have the choice to be depressed about this. We have like a responsibility mm. to be not just like recycle more or like be myself less this, less that, but like just throw everything you've got. Find your agency where you have it. Find the things you can change within the structures that you're within. Like find whatever, whatever it is, because it's not, because we are entangled with beings whose survival depends on this by a matter of small degrees. That's kind of the, that's sort of the, and I, there's a beautiful thinker, uh, an environmentalist called Joanna Macy, who talks about this idea of active hope, which is being foolishly optimistic is obviously useless, but this idea of just hoping optimistically in a very active way is, I think, just fundamental. From, certainly from the, I mean, given that we make the cultural myths um, on the art side. So this is actually something I find very interesting because uh, I, I really like that the art pieces you were describing was about the tree in particular. So, because for me it's, um, I mean, as a scientist we give the facts and then okay, sometimes there's a bit of an underline of Armageddon, which I, I don't really like that so much actually. But there's this, um, if if you go on that route, it's this melancholia and kind of everyone's just like, oh, we can't do anything anyway, let's just go. Um, but this creation of hope, and I'm wondering how do you see that also in, in, in the arts in particular, I would say. So, so in the sciences, we, I mean, we know how to fix the problem, right? Sort of. Um, <laughs> but um, in, in, in principle, we know what, what should not be done to not make it worse, right? Um, but that also, if you want action, it, it kind of people need to feel like, Oh, there is a hope on the other side. So it's not like, oh, I need to do this now. And I don't think you can really motivate people, you need to do this now. There should be like a really like a shining other world out there where people, that's where I want to go. And I wonder, also, it was very interesting what you were saying. It was also my perception of the answer. They have been very long a bit outside of some of the more human crisis things. And I wonder, how do you see the role of art now as we go forward with this, not only Armageddon, but kind of create, like, maybe also a bit like this Greta uh, thing, so that, that, that there's a future there, also the young in particular, and creation of hope, and this hope then enacts the steps that we would like to see. Yeah, I see, I, see, I mean, this idea we talked about, about a futurism would have yeah. something to do with that. Yeah in a sense, to describe the changes not as negative changes but as, as positive changes. And I think also this relations between many of these social uh, inequalities, if, if we can use this huge crisis of the climate to actually go in and, and also change some of the other inequalities, then, then there might actually be the idea that, okay, there is a possibility of a change, there is a, a way of... of creating societies that could be different. Uh, and I think, of course, that is, is the potential there is in a crisis somehow. Mm. And then I think it's also, I mean, of course, science has one perspective, which is talking in one language. As mm. artists, we have 
yes. another perspective. And I, I think this relation that I don't think we we should illustrate the problems of the science. We should. Yeah. It's yeah. more like a. Uh, I use this word contemplation or meditation on something. So, mm. so for instance, these holes in in Siberia. When we talked with a scientist, who she had a kind of very specified, extremely detailed version of what was going on, but maybe we, as artists, we're looking at the same phenomena, but we're looking, we're seeing something, something different, and this constant reflection or contemplation mm. on some issues. If a lot of people does it, then it it actually becomes a more detailed mm. knowledge. There's somehow. also the question of kids, yeah. <laughs> uh, not. In the sense of, I was having this conversation once with a colleague who, and we were, and they were kind of saying, isn't it amazing that science fiction has kind of predicted all the technological objects that we're working with now? And my perspective is also, well, the 45-year-olds who are now designing those objects probably were five or six years old when they were reading or watching, or 10 years old or whatever, Hmm. when they were reading or watching that science fiction, and then, whether consciously or subconsciously, then recreating those technologies on the basis of the things that were imagined once. So actually, when we imagine a world in the future, hmm. we are participating in making it. And so what images do you want to put out into the world? And this is why I'm actually quite averse to wor work that, like, say, artworks that reproduces the violence by, to like, show you really where the violence... Because I'm like, well, what images do we have the responsibility to put out into hmm. the world, given the fact that the world that we depict as images to the kids might be the one that subconsciously they then work to reproduce, work to reproduce. 30 or 40 years down the line. <laughs> we, can, we can go to the practicalities now, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> no, but let's just stay on that speculative space still, because somehow I, I also, I mean, I see this, I still think we're talking separately in a way. Um, and I wonder whether... Like, is there a moment where, where someone does this, creates this speculative future, and you're just like, oh, God, no. Like, that's not possible. Like, don't give people that kind of hope, or don't, you know, do you, is, does it work the other way around, where the science kind of winces and says, oh, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. This is, no, you can't do that. Well, I mean, there's a lot of movies out there, that are bullocks, scientifically, of course. Yeah. So, but they're still inspiring. So, so this is where it comes back to, I mean, I, also, I fully agree with you. The arts is not there to just purely illustrate the science. So, so there's, a, there's something different and more in the arts than just purely visualization or making you connect to something. So, so I don't think there has to be this necessity between this. So, so when I worked with an artist a few years ago, um, it, was, it, 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 was, it evolved over two years and talking and drinking hot chocolate. <laughs> and, um, and then so for me it was also a very interesting process because first I thought, oh, okay, she's going to visualize kind of what, what I work on, which, of course, that didn't end up like that at all, of course. But then she, she visualized something at the beginning. I was like, what is that going to be? But then I really liked it. So, so she was basically, and she picked up things between the lines, what I was saying, which was also interesting. So I was kind of pointing out that, I mean, what Neil is saying, we have, we have data, but we always, there's a shortage of data. So we, there's always holes we have to fill with some physical knowledge or with some speculation. So the, the, our models have holes. And that's kind of the, the theme she played on. And uh, I thought it was very fascinating. So what she created was, was something very different than uh, what I would try to communicate as a scientist, but it had an intrinsic value in itself. So, so I, I, 
I think it's just you have to be open from both sides, and then something comes out of it. And, the, and the, for, for me, it's more like um, this was the melancholia part, because um, I think what comes out of it is also a little bit like with what kind of uh, intention or where you are emotionally maybe as well, how you go into this, right? Um, and so this is why I was keen on this hope, so that that we kind of think about create something that okay, we actually know what could be done. Also, they need all the inequality and, and, and kind of take it from there. Yeah. But I'd also almost say that we're not full time what we are all the time. I mean, you're not full time yeah. scientists. You're also dreamers, and maybe you wake up at two in the morning with a crazy idea. And maybe right. there's part of your research that you can't even put in papers because you've noticed, and it's so aberrant and weird. And you know that it's true, but it's not going to be peer reviewed. You know, so we're not full time, and we're not full time. Dreamers or whatever it is, <laughs> what that we're, you know, about? we spend a lot of time like nerdily listening to the radio lab or whatever. But and so to also, I think the the when we're sitting on panels speaking on behalf of like as scientists as our people, we obviously then also reperform certain parts of ourselves. But maybe in those contexts of collaboration and uh, we allow ourselves to be a little bit more open in those kinds of things as well. Mm. So it's not all like, although the plasma of today is is a bit like science of being. Yeah, maybe we should have mixed it before. No, but it's also what, I mean, as a scientist, I imagine you can't say a stone is talking, but as an artist, I can, I'm allowed to say that. So, I mean, in that. Because if, in a way, for instance, you're looking at the cave, you are also listening to the cave in a sense. So there is a kind of, communication from the cave but we can talk about that communication on, in different ways or, that's right. uh, yeah. I think that, that's super interesting also by going into this you realize this complexity of science is so enormous now that it's, it's really mind blowing this is actually another topic that I thought was interesting I think it came up also when we had a chat recently is, is complexity mm. so the the world is complex, also the scientific world, or the natural science world, but also like the political world, uh, societies in itself. I think also in particular today, uh, a lot of also political arenas, it's something is oversimplified, right? So I think there's also a place to show things are complex mm-hmm. and uh, but at the same time, maybe again, coming to this middle cold, yeah, even if it's very complex, you know, it's still something we can we can do, we can achieve with it. But uh, have you this this uh, complexity? Is that something that uh, comes up very specifically in your art, for example? Or, uh, I mean, you of course doing an artwork is also about communicating something to figure out. Okay, mm-hmm. there is something here that's. That is so complex that it doesn't really make sense. How can we simplify it or how can we take one part out and talk about that instead of the whole? Because if we talk about the whole, people will get completely lost. Mm. And I think in this in this whole process, for me, I was working with this huge overwhelming crisis, but the, the first step is to figure out, okay, can I find a detail that is actually small enough to talk about it? So this whole was an example or... Mm. In the finance, we, t- we found something called a dark pool, which is a certain digital mm-hmm. stock market. Mm-hmm. And that little element c- 
could speak about the larger system. Yeah, but, yeah. but to be able to talk about something, you need you can't take the whole thing because then right. it will be completely black uh, for for people. So you have to to be able to communicate. You have to find an uh, an entrance or a detail. And I think working with this um, last project, then we had a lot of huge ideas and it was very difficult to figure out how to deal with all this and how to create a narrative. But at the moment we got this extremely stupid idea of the dead tree and all of a sudden, and especially when the dead tree started talking, then everything became very much easier because then we had a kind of entrance to that narrative. And I think this is very much how an artist is working is try to figure out okay I want to talk about this vast huge complex thing but we need to find an entrance and I think this uh, image of the beach that that in this production that we can see on Saturday then the beach is that detail you can you could look at people on the beach and then from that small everyday situation all of us know you can you can kind of yeah look into a very big, complex world somehow. We yeah. face exactly the yeah. same challenges, right? I mean, we can't, none of us can look at the whole climate mm. system as a whole. We each take no. our own little piece. So we could probably learn a lot from each other how to, mm. how to find that piece and how to then reconnect it mm. to the whole. It's like, ultimately, um, there's at least two ways of dealing with something incredibly complex, right? One of them is the mapping exercise. Um, there's a really great book by Benjamin Bratton recently where he argues that we have the capabilities of modeling the whole sort of behavior of the planet, but to be able to model it, we would have to exhaust all the resources, basically saying that a one-to-one map of the world is the world itself. And so, so ma- and, and, and mapping belongs to the um, extractivist colonial history of itself. We, it's, that's, what it, that's, what it, that's what maps were there for, right? To extract uh, stuff out of the ground and work out of bodies. And then the other kind of uh, embracing of complexity has to do with self-dissolution or like to feel oneself or one's mm. knowledge production or one's research within the whole rather than outside of it. And it's something that I don't want to speak on behalf of at all, but you can find a lot in um, most kind of uh, um, particularly indigenous cosmologies. You find that most of the biodiverse places in the world are actually cared for uh, by indigenous nations who are now at like risk of their life, particularly in Brazil, uh, but everywhere. And that, and that and if you kind of go back and look at the sort of cosmologies and the uh, relationalities with uh, ground and mountain and earth and land and being and puma and <laughs> body and human, all of those, there's like a complete uh, embeddedness, like inher- uh, imminence, sorry, uh, to that. So, so it's like, how do you learn to care for something that you let go of the imperative of understanding completely? How can you learn to sort of, or combat something, like the complexities of a power structure? How can you learn to combat or care for something that you don't necessarily need to be up here and mapping? 
is, I think, it mm. speaks to your point of like, how can there be, or to yours, of how can there be like one thing that then leads you to mm. the notion of a net? Does that make se any sense? Mm. Yes. Yes. <laughs> sideways sideways, sideways <laughs> nods. Resting nods. Um, yes, and I think we've seen in the last year as places like uh, Australia have been on fire, it's been the Aboriginal communities who care for the land who have said, yeah, we've been telling you this for a long time. And uh, maybe going back to listening. I mean, maybe here we talk about listening within complexity. That's the, a role an urgency for us all. Um, we're almost out of time. Uh, we've got 50 minutes left on this panel. I just wanted to ask if there were any questions from the audience to our panel. I know I floated the idea of practicalities, but the more we talk, the more I realise that no one is going to want to be asked what's the solution. Um, <laughs> <coughs> but, uh, I Surely think... no one wants to hear us saying what, the, what you should be doing in your daily life. <laughs> but are there any questions? One at the front here. Just raise your hand and the microphone will come to you. Uh, there was I, one at the very front first, yeah. Um, thank you. Um, in sort of direct relation to that, my, um, I've been wondering about, we've talked quite a lot about, about personal responsibility and how all these decisions come down to things that we could ourselves do when a large, well, the majority of the emissions are as a result of the petrochemical industry. And just if there's a way that um, what we've been talking about can sort of, how we can sort of push that responsibility or what that what a community can do in order to sort of come together and shift that. And I'm, I'm, I'm sort of ask, asking for a solution again, but, but we haven't talked so much about that, perhaps. I mean, it, solving broken politics would be a good way to start. Mm. It, you know, in an increasingly complex world, we have the far right going, oh, it doesn't matter if you agree with each other or not, just vote for us. And we've got the super clear message and it's usually full of hate. And that's good. And the left is like... Yeah but, but yeah, but are we, yeah, but are we, do we, uh, and we just spend this whole time, and now I'm kind of slightly post, uh, I feel myself slightly post, like, left versus right thing, because <coughs> politics is more complicated than that these days. And so I kind of feel like really trying very hard to, like, as emancipatory ex-left-wing or left-wing politics to, like, knit together find new ways of knitting together, then you can make the lobbying groups and the pressure groups and the blah, blah, blah. But like we, we live in broken political systems at the moment. I think so like, yeah. Yeah. it comes back to what we just talked about at the end, the complexity, I think. So, so, um, so if, you, if you want a change that's on such a large scale, it has to be a huge buy-in globally, right? So and then there's, uh, as, we, as we learned, even in a well... Uh, educated countries, there's, there's people who do not believe in climate change. So, so it becomes like, if if you have a large fraction that doesn't believe that we did we caused the problem, then of course why why should anyone do anything about it? So, so it becomes okay. So then I need to convince everyone that we actually are part of the problem, and then when everyone agrees, then it's one step. But then you still need to convince them that that's bad what we are doing to the planet, right? So, so you can still say, well, let me just have five degrees of warmer planet, who cares? But then you need to convey, okay, there's a value attached to this that implies that we, as a human race, we will really struggle and there will be a lot of other conflicts because of all the changes on the environment. So, so I think this, is the, this, this, is what, this was at least my intention with this complexity topic, right? So it's a, it's, it seems like a simple thing we have to reduce the CO2 emissions, but it's such a huge 
you know, tale of things that, the com that is so complex that you need to kind of solve as part of this, which makes it a very, uh, very involved thing. So, so, so for me, it's like, okay, if, we, if everyone believes that we, or if more people believe that we cause this problem, then at least we have a starting base to then talk about the values that we as a human race have on this, problem, on this planet, and then some changes can by, or you start top down if you get the right dictator, but you know, no one wants that, maybe. <laughs> Do we risk this, this conversation about complexity leading to a certain melancholy? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that, we're helpless in the complex system. But that was my point as well. Like, if, if you really go down that route and the complexity, it's very easy to just be completely overwhelmed. I mean, I sit at my desk and we do science also near the, and then you, you get fascinated by the details, but at some stage you're like, oh my God, you know, this is just it's too much. So uh, in terms of understanding, if you really want to understand the full system, right? And then you, you get like this pessimism. But I, I actually, you know, this is what I was trying to imply, that we should, we should get out of this pessimism. I mean, there's a lot of things that we do know, and we as a human race have come a very far away technologically as well. Um, so we should we should look forward to uh, also as you said is a change, fixing the fixing the climate, but um, addressing addressing these things also will have impacts on other issues in in the human society. So there's something to look forward to. That's well, I think to I completely agree. It's political. It's a political question, and I think it's also a lot to do with cynicism. We shouldn't yeah. accept cynicism. Yeah. And I think that for me, the big problem is not so much these climate deniers because there are not that many. It's yeah. all the people who actually know what is going on, except that humans are a big part of it, but are not able to do anything about yeah. it. Mm -hmm. It's like maybe 80%. And I think, and I would speak for myself, I'm partly part of that 80% in, if I look at my daily yeah. lifestyle somehow. And I think this is a big challenge, how to, how to actually come from the... Uh, realization that we are doing something completely wrong with the way capitalism works to actually change in it instead mm -hmm. of of all the time kind of being you you try to do something and then you get ah it's, this is too naive this is too romantic or this is hippie <laughs> style or and there's a, there's a kind of general cynicism that kind of rejects any kind of change and i think this is this is a really big problem and we have to be very stubborn to kind of just to stand on this na na naivety which I don't think is naive it's just to 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 believe in, in that there is a hope we can actually change things yeah. uh, and, and then just say no to that kind of cynicism that rules most of the decisions that are yeah. taken and also for us all to take an interest in activist organizations mm. and just in processes of organizing mm. that have been going on for a really long time. Mm. Right. Like for us to genuinely find out what they are, how we can support them. Not all the NGOs at the top that are fighting for that little scrap of uh, funding, right? But like the on-the-ground community organizers that are around. Mm. And how to then connect with that work that has been going on for a really long time mm. And now that it's a really strategically clever time to talk about cl climate change because people care mm. more to kind of like boost then or to work. Give, give our support to those communities because they are here. I don't right? know how, but yeah. they're here. But I think Another that's really important the because there's, there's a danger in, in, again, being paralyzed by the fact that there's a, a political problem, that there's all these lobbyist groups that we feel kind of powerless against, but we're not. I mean, yeah, if we're engaging in in those smaller-scale uh, structures, and we can actually force politics to change. 
Next question from the audience. Who has the microphone? Ah, yes. you do. Great. Do it, do it. Go for it. <laughs> Hi, um, it was, it was, yeah, you talked a lot about complexity now, but I was also thinking that maybe it has something to do with um, having a faith in the cosmological, um, and that's kind of almost like a spiritual thing as well, and that can be quite difficult to kind of accept, but like, for a lot of people, but yeah, I think that's the difference between hope and kind of, yeah, depression really, which creates this kind of activism. But at the same time, do you think there's a kind of fear around what total communication and total collaboration might create in terms of um, a homogenous kind of society and world that doesn't function? Because if everyone runs to one side of a ship, then it will sink, and the same with society. So I just wonder if, yeah, you could. I, I, I can't quite follow. What we, so I'm, I'm kind of saying that if, if we sort of do all the things that we're meant and increase communication and collaboration, is there a, a worry that? that will sort of create an imbalance within kind of societal structures. Like, we can't all be artists. No, but... Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I'm, so when everyone talks to each other, it's still the diversity of all the people in the room, right? So, so I'm, I, I don't quite see how talking and communicating to each other will... I mean, there will still be disagreements. So I'm, I'm not... I don't, yeah, I don't quite see how it will tip... But, but I don't think everybody should be artists, but I think everybody should be democratic citizens and take yeah. part in, in democracy with full force somehow. And I think this is also uh, what is at stake now. We see a lot of uh, things going on with the f uh, freedom of pr uh, free speech and, and uh, kind of a lot of democratic values are threatened uh, at the same time as, as this crisis is going on. And I think to be able to, as, as a as society, to change things, we also need to take responsibility of taking part in society. Uh, and that means activism, it needs voting, it needs kind of speaking in newspapers, it's been yeah. writing about stuff, it, it means participation. And I think this is, is, it's actually nothing to do with art or science or anything, it's just participation in society that's super important. There's two more questions I think that we have time for. Three, let's see if we have time. But we'll just see if we can fit them in. Yeah. One here. I'm not sure if it's a question or a solution. But I think, uh, Solutions are welcome. Uh, I'm a musician and I compose and uh, spend most of my life doing music. Uh, I think uh, we can help you guys. We could... Um, there are too many words. We can go deeper. And we can use music and dance and art to go deeper. Uh, and that's a bit of, that's a solution for us. Mm. We can't save the world by science, but we can make people think deeper and listen deeper. And the next more kind of, I think it was brilliant what you said about making pictures for the future. I think that's maybe the big thing I learned this year. Like, as we have a responsibility to make hope, and we have, I'm not sure my generation will fix it, I'm not sure even my children's generation will fix it, but maybe my grandchildren's generation will fix this. But these pictures we have to put in people's mind now. And it can just be, I think, like a, a greener, healthier society is a better society than what we have now. That's all we have to do. We have to make these pictures very clear. And that's our obligations as artists. I very much like that. So we should have a hot chocolate together. But, <laughs> but this was also just to come back with the concert tonight. So this concert series that um, 
Peter was mentioning. So there's, uh, that was one idea to use the art as a, as a vehicle to engage more than what could be just done by facts. And I, I see a huge role of the arts to play in, in, in all these issues that we touched upon today. And I, because that, I think that's the most engaging way for, for everyone. Yeah. Thank you. At the back. Hi. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if this is really a question either or whether it's a... Solution. I don't know whether it's for you guys either, because maybe you <laughs> say... Uh, but um, I was just thinking about this issue of complexity uh, uh, and the incredibly rapid and simple collapse of, let's say, an airline that we see happening in the UK today with the sudden fear very, very recent in the UK with the coronavirus and suddenly an airline collapses and because things are shut down. And we talk about what we can do and the activism and the complexity, and I agree all of those things are very valuable and interesting ways to think. I'm an artist and I'm uh, uh, always... Uh, complexity is a fascinating area for me to inhabit. But I'm wondering if we overlook the, the incredible power that we have when we say no to stuff. You know, when we see a no imposed on us by coronavirus and suddenly everybody's saying, okay, we can't travel, we can't do this. We see an airline collapsing. It only takes two weeks. You know, we spend so much time wondering about how we can stop these things and what we have to do. And I sometimes wonder if we forget to say, all right, what can we as a group not do? And how much power do we have when we actually, as a big group of people, don't do that? And we see things changing, you know? And so I think that that's maybe a... Uh, yeah, I mean, what do you guys think? <laughs> There's like, I feel like even in my lifetime, there's like political um, actions that have been either forgotten or rendered sort of impractical or impossible or illegal. Organizing, assemblies, strikes, refusals, boycotts, all of those things. So I completely agree. Like, there are some political, there, there are ways of having a kind of collective political voice, including uh, boycotts that is incredibly powerful and we somehow, like, every year that goes by, because of things like, actually, coronavirus, mass hysteria, I mean, because of things that restrict, um, that progressively create these states of exceptions, those states of exceptions are also used for us to not be able to have political, sort of, freedom of political expression. So the whole coronavirus thing is a half-hour conversation we can have later. <laughs> but, and then we need to invent the new political models. Like, the ones that are more, maybe even more complex, maybe even more manipulative and more strategic than the boycott, so that the boycott can happen, and for those who then... And then other people can do this other thing. So, for example, when I'm talking about the climate, depending on who I talk in front of, I either speak about climate justice and sort of indigenous land rights and all this kind of stuff, or I speak about how, you know, like, uh, climate change affects mental health and well-being in north urban centres. And it's not because I'm a hypocrite or one thing is... Or, like, I don't believe one of those two things. But it's, like, what's going to work the most in this kind of room? And I think to, to kind of realize that you can have these kind of slightly manipulate... Like, I like the idea of manipulation because it's sort of... That's what sculptors do. <laughs> so, so instead of thinking, like, manipulation is terrible, I'm like, well, manipulation is actually just working with your material. And so how can you, like, take your material, figure out who's in the room, and, like, shift slightly? And that's another political form. So there's, like, all these different... We just need to remind ourselves of what politi politics... I mean, I'm agreeing. It's like a long-winded way of agreeing with you. <laughs> <laughs>
But maybe that's also one of the problems with this climate issue is that we all agree. It's very difficult not to agree. I mean, <laughs> you can find those 63% very old men who's very conservative somewhere. Uh, but most of us is agreeing that we have to do something. But f from that state of agreement to actually figure out what to do, I think this is really... Uh, the question now. I think that the title of this work we're working with, Are You Ready?, is, is about this. Are we actually ready to, ready to go to this new society? That's a very because we need to build a new society. Somehow. There's a last question. There. there was one last question. There's, there's time. I tried to be brief. Uh, it's coming from a climate scientist, because I have the impression that the scientists haven't really wakened up even the climate scientists haven't realized what the implications of our own work means. And I think through uh, artists and societies, it's becoming clear to the scientists what our, in, the implications of our work. So it's a question to you. Have, you know, what's, what's going to happen now that the, the scientists are awakening and, and actually realizing what it means to society, what we've been saying for 30 to 50 years without really knowing? We've been flying and driving and eating and doing everything as everybody else without any concern about the climate, 90% or more of the scientists, and, and I speak from experience. So I think here uh, already the role of artists and societies have been very clear and maybe more so, and I'm sort of curious, what's, what's next? What's, what's coming? That's what Franz was just saying. <laughs> Are you ready? <coughs> but also this, I mean, no. I'll talk about my own work again, but this question implies that we're not started yet. Mm -hmm. Are you ready? It's, we're sitting there just getting ready to, to run somewhere. Uh, and I think, I think this is also part of this sadness or melancholia that we, we are somehow stuck in a, in a position and, and we know a lot of tools and answers to go further, but to actually do it, is, it's a very exciting time because... In three years, maybe we have moved. But uh, maybe to end on this note of hope, because maybe we just need to create more pictures about mm. what could be there, instead of saying this is how bad it could be. Yeah. Yeah. Someone really um, amazing said to me, uh, "We just we know we know all the dystopias quite well, but we've mm. forgotten to make." A notion to like create notions of what success looks like, yeah. and it's like in most other disciplines and most other projects, you have to know what your success looks like. Mm. And in relation to climate, social injustice, all those things, it's like there's a bit of a. Mm -hmm. Hang on, I think I know, but actually, if I stop, yeah. and once once you start, then you realize that some of those success points are actually in friction with one another, mm. namely like human population and the well-being of the planet. Like, there's some like, fundamental contradictions at the heart of that success, and maybe that's kind of what's stopping. I think it is, yes. That feels like a, <laughs> a place to leave this conversation. Uh, maybe one picture of success is a room full of people uh, thinking together and listening together about how we could find thank you for sharing a different future. So thank you very much to all of our audience. Uh, thank you for being part of Borealis. As I said, uh, 
1845 this evening at Griechenland. Uh, you can come and see. You can come even earlier. There will be scientists welcoming you and explaining you how we do our science from six o'clock. From six o'clock, even from six. I'll the show the talking rocks. So yeah, yeah. there will be talking rocks. That's right. Six o'clock. Six o'clock, and then 6:45 the introduction, and 19:30 is the, the concert. Uh, yeah. yeah. 1845-1930, the music begins. Um, yeah, scientists from the Bjergner Center for Climate Research, Harmonian, playing new works by Teresa Ulvo and Marius Nesset and Maurice Ravel, not new, uh, and, uh, and scientists on stage also as well. So, and a fantastic concert after that in Spissen from uh, Jürgen Train and Stein Erheim. So please do look forward to that. Thank you very much to my panel, Thomas Spengler, Nele Meckler, Lucia Petrovisti, and Franz Jacobi. Uh, thank you for joining us. This talk was made in collaboration with the University of Bergen, Bjerkne Centre for Climate Research, and Bergen Public Library. If you liked listening to the podcast, please leave a review and help us spread the word. Thank you for listening, and see you next month.